Many clinicians rely on fasting blood glucose and hemoglobin A1c as monitors of their patient's control of blood sugar. But in 2007, is that really enough? How current are you on glycemic control? Get ready to be updated. You're listening to ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Colajuri from the Bowdoin Institute of Obesity, Nutrition, and Exercise at the University of Sydney in Australia. He's co-author of a key publication by the International Diabetes Federation, which recently redefined the guidelines on postprandial glucose control. He's the author of many books and peer review articles. Today we're discussing postprandial control, how important is it, and what should your goals be with your diabetic patient. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, Dr. Colajuri. My pleasure. What were we thinking about postprandial hyperglycemia, that it wasn't important? Its significance wasn't really known until recently, and there's been a number of epidemiological studies which established a clear relationship between the increase in glucose after a meal and a number of endpoints, particularly in relation to cardiovascular disease. And more importantly, there have been some studies which have suggested that it makes a significant contribution to overall diabetes control. And one can infer from some intervention studies that controlling it may well improve outcomes. Do you want to tell us some more about those studies? There was a large study which was done in Europe and pooled data from many countries throughout Europe and a similar study done in Asia that clearly showed a relationship in people without diabetes and also in people with diabetes that as the blood glucose level increased after a meal, the chance of getting a heart attack or premature mortality increased quite steeply. More recently, in terms of what happens to people with diabetes and the contribution of glucose levels after a meal, it's clear that if one is going to try to achieve the target glycemic control that most of the guidelines advocate, then you can't do this without paying attention to the post-meal glucose. What do the new recommendations suggest for postprandial glucose control? The level that's recommended is less than 140 milligrams per deciliter, and this is derived from studies done in people without diabetes who have been carefully monitored over a 24-hour period, which shows that glucose levels very rarely exceed those levels in somebody who doesn't have diabetes. And also, these are consistent with the levels that we consider to be normal and define normal glucose tolerance in the general population. So can patients have good control? You only look at their fasting blood sugar and then frequently they may overshoot on postprandial glucose? Is that possible? Yes. A number of studies have shown that the majority of people with diabetes, even if they have normal fasting glucose levels, will invariably have high blood glucose levels after a meal. And this contributes to overall glycemic control. The contribution does depend on how good or bad the overall control is. So in people who have quite poor diabetes control, judged by the glycated hemoglobin level of, say, it's, it's quite high, then there is a major contribution that comes from fasting glucose. But as you improve fasting glucose and get down to the levels that are recommended by most associations throughout the world, such as an HbA1c of 65 to 7%, then the relative contribution 
of the post-meal glucose increases so that most of the contribution comes from the post-meal glucose and only a small contribution from the fasting glucose. So if you're going to get down to the target levels, then you really have to focus on improving the post-meal glucose. Now, what about someone who's not even diagnosed as a type 2, but they may be at risk because they're obese or family history? What's the importance of postprandial glucose readings in that population? In the range that's above normal, but not in the diabetic range, these people are classified as having impaired glucose tolerance. And here, only the post-meal glucose is elevated. And these people have about five times the risk of going on to get diabetes and they have two to three times the risk compared to somebody who has normal glucose tolerance of having a heart attack or dying prematurely from cardiovascular disease. So it is actually important in people who don't yet have diabetes and attention to the glucose levels and the post-meal glucose levels in those people can actually improve outcomes. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and we're fortunate to speak today with Dr. Stephen Colajuri from the University of Sydney in Australia. He's also a member of the International Diabetes Federation. We're discussing postprandial control of blood sugars and what your goal should be with your patients and maybe even your non-diabetic patients. So if you're not diabetic and your glucose is elevated after a meal, the clinician should be doing screening for this with glucose tolerance tests perhaps? That's a difficult question. In people who one suspects of maybe having undiagnosed diabetes, then it's appropriate to do some tests initially starting off with the fasting glucose, but maybe having to go on to do an oral glucose tolerance test. Diagnosing elevated glucose levels in somebody who hasn't got diabetes is a difficult problem. We clearly can't do oral glucose tolerance tests in, in the whole community. So for those people who you think might be at risk, maybe have a strong family history of diabetes, maybe have other risk factors like being uh, overweight or you think there might be an increased risk of uh, going on to develop diabetes, then it's appropriate to do further testing. But I think that we will actually have to try and come up with a better way of screening people who haven't got diabetes to see if they fit into this category of impaired glucose tolerance short of doing an oral glucose tolerance test. Are there other risks associated with postprandial glucose elevation? You mentioned the cardiovascular. There are a series of problems which can arise from having high glucose levels after a meal. So apart from the cardiovascular problems, it also is associated with increased risk of getting retinal damage. I mean, these are people who actually have diabetes, but in people who, who don't have diabetes, then it can cause thickening of the arteries, which may lead to cardiovascular disease. There's also a link between postprandial glucose levels and certain cancers, uh, particularly pancreatic cancer. And some studies suggest that uh, it does have an effect on cognitive function, especially in the elderly. And that brings me to my next question. The elderly population, what are they at risk for? The same things that we've outlined. They may be at increased risk because they do usually have other risk factors which are predisposed to cardiovascular disease. But post-meal glucose levels tend to increase with age and this combined with age itself as a risk factor 
uh, increases their risk of cardiovascular disease. So if your older population has high blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, and a family history, then maybe this is something you should look into even before they have um, clinical diabetes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. They're the group that does need to be considered for, uh, for further testing because in the environment that you've described, it is quite likely that they will have a problem with their glucose tolerance as well as the other risk factors which you mentioned. Okay, so now that you've warned us about the risks, how do you control it if your patients are on oral agents or do you do something different if they're on insulin? If we're talking about people with diabetes, then there are lifestyle, especially diet modifications, which can influence post-meal glucose. And in particular here, we're talking about the carbohydrate content of the diet not only is the total amount of carbohydrate that's eaten important to how high the glucose levels increase after a meal, but also the quality of the carbohydrate. So carbohydrate meals with low glycemic index are less likely to increase the glucose levels after a meal. For many people, that can improve the post-meal glucose levels, but it may not be sufficient, and therefore one needs to think about medications which specifically target post-meal glucose. And what are they for our listeners? Well, these include agents which block the breakdown of carbohydrates medications, such as uh, the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors like Acabose, for example. There are also a range of other medications which only recently coming out onto the, the market, the GLP-1 agonists like Bieta, and also a new class of agents called the DPP-4 inhibitors, which actually increase GLP-1 levels in the blood, which uh, in turn stimulate insulin and have an effect in decreasing uh, post-meal glucose. Also, there are some insulins which are more likely to affect uh, post-meal glucose compared to others, and these include the fast-acting insulin analogs. Now, if you diagnose this in a patient you're already seeing who you thought was well-controlled, you're following their fasting blood sugars, as many of us have been taught in the past, is this the point where you might refer them to an endocrinologist or somebody to bring in these adjunct medications and get a little more specific and tighter control rather than try to follow them in a family practice or an internal medicine office? Yeah, well, that's obviously a decision that needs to be made by the physician and uh, and the patient. But in a situation where the fasting glucose levels appear okay, but the glycated hemoglobin is not at target, then this is a situation where post-meal glucose levels specifically need to be monitored and invariably they will be found to be high. In many instances, they aren't even measured, and so people don't really get to the bottom of why the glycated hemoglobin level is elevated. Having discovered that it's increased, then there are strategies which can be implemented by the family physician in the first instance, but clearly if they're not being successful and the target levels aren't being achieved, then it is appropriate to refer on. I've read that inhaled insulin may be of benefit in some of these situations. Can you comment on that? Inhaled insulin is potentially useful in this situation. But the studies actually have in many ways been not as positive as we would have hoped. It is one of the the options, but one that's not used extensively. And I'm not sure what the future holds in relation to that particular mode of therapy.
Well, if you're listening to this program and if you're not an endocrinologist and you want more information on this, do you have any advice where some of our listeners may go for more information, updated information on better control of glucose in your diabetic population? The publications that we've been specifically referring to and other related publications are available on the International Diabetes Federation website, which is www.idf.org. But other organizations' websites, such as the American Diabetes Association, will have information on post-meal glucose. Dr. Colagieri, can I thank you very much for being my guest today? It's my pleasure. Thank you. Today we've been discussing diabetes and the new guidelines for managing postprandial glucose. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Colagieri from the University of Sydney in Australia. And I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions on this or any segment, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. We want to hear from you, and thank you for listening.